In this edition of the Futures Work podcast, I sat down with David Ferugia, who's the author of a new book called Youth, Work and the Post Ford Itself, published by Bristol University Press. I kicked off the discussion by asking David why he decided to write this book at this particular point in time. Well, I think that um, the the interest in this problem started uh, with some work that I had been doing in, in regional Australia, looking at young people who are widely regarded as likely to do poorly in work. And everybody that I spoke to um, talked about how critical it was that young people go out and get jobs. And of course, it's good if young people get jobs. I would definitely not argue that. Young people definitely have more satisfying lives if they have good jobs. Um, But there is an enormous social and policy imperative as well that young people get jobs. It's There is a massive social architecture that exists in order to make it so that young people get jobs. It's, it's, the, it's, it's regarded as the be all and end all of so much youth policy. And it's also regarded as, as Kathy Weeks talks about when she talks about the contemporary work ethic, the job that your kid gets is also regarded as a reflection of the quality of your parenting. So there's almost no aspect of youth that isn't somehow wrapped up in the imperative to get a job. But what's, I think, more significant and something that I want to open up and encourage people to ask questions about is not just the getting of a job, but the process of becoming a worker. Because it's kind of taken for granted that young people are workers in waiting. Um, But actually, there's a massive effort required to make them into workers. Um, And I wanted to look look at how it is that young people are responding to the imperative for them to become workers and how this relates to um, their experiences of work and how this relates to the different social locations that they came from, in particular, social class. So... Also, from the perspective of the field that I come from, the sociology of youth, the sociology of youth is very critical of the social architecture that surrounds young people to facilitate the getting of jobs. But it actually, as a field, largely takes for granted that the getting of jobs is the key thing. So the main... the main framework both in the sociology of youth and also internationally in social policy is this concept of the youth transition. And the idea here is that a young person transitions from school into work or into whatever, and in so doing becomes roughly an adult. And so work kind of operates as a signpost of adulthood. And and, um, what's basically the, the purpose of youth transitions is to ask what jobs do young people get and who gets which jobs and how much do those people get paid? So the field critiques individualized and neoliberal interventions into young people's lives, but it doesn't actually critique or look beyond the notion that the getting of jobs is is the thing. And basically what this means is that we have a massive research endeavor, which is premised on providing labor to capital. That's actually that's actually what it's for. Um, and I thought that there was perhaps more that we as sociologists could be doing 
to think critically about what it means to be a worker and how it is that young people become workers and what that means for uh, youth and for identity and, and for the, the changing nature of youth and of identity um, with different forms of production. So, yeah, that's why I chose to, that's, yeah, that's why, that's why now. <laughs> and yeah. So bringing on the points you mentioned, um, Kathy Weeks, um, just now, so you kind of trace this kind of lineage drawing on Kathy Weeks' work from the kind of Protestant work ethic to the sort of Fordist work ethic to now uh, the post-Fordist work ethic, which is your kind of theoretical framework uh, for, for, for the book. And so before we move on to like kind of the questions specifically around, around youth, um, what do you think some of the kind of major dynamics of the post-Fordist work ethic are of interest here in terms of this idea around the cultivation of, of the self, or as we'll probably talk about a bit later on, the idea of this cultivation of self or the necessity of a wage? So kind of what are the major sort of dynamics that, we, that you're interested in that you've kind of unpicked from this post-Fordist work ethic? Right. So Kathy's book, the, uh, Kathy Weeks's book, The Problem with Work, which I commend to anyone listening to this, um, is part of a sociological tradition examining this notion of the work ethic. And anybody who studied sociology as an undergraduate will have studied the work of Max Weber and his concept of the Protestant work ethic. And Kathy Weeks provides a kind of development of the notion of the work ethic, which she suggests has shifted with different regimes of production in different historical eras. So the, the concept of the work ethic effectively describes the way that people are encouraged to form a relationship with work which goes beyond material necessity and views work as a, as a meaningful realm. And in Weber's initial work, the work ethic effectively operates to discipline a reluctant group of otherwise, you, you know, workers into becoming workers. Basically, Weber says that the Protestant work ethic was designed to create a working class where, and a working class is a group of people who works on for capital, right? Whereas prior to that, you had a series of essentially subsistence laborers who, if they had enough, would not work um, because they were like, well, what, what for? <laughs> so, so Weber basically says that the Protestant work ethic, uh, well, Kathy Weeks, Kathy Weeks puts it like this: in different eras of capitalism, the work ethic makes different promises to people. And the work ethic promises a reward. So she says, in, in the Protestant work ethic, the, the work ethic offers a transcendent reward, and that is salvation. Work hard and you will be saved in the next life. And that's really the Protestant work ethic. Now, there's, there's all sorts of tensions and contradictions within the Protestant work ethic, but that's fundamentally the promise of work. Successfully become a worker, apply yourself diligently to work, Approach work as an end in itself, and when you die, you will be one of the um, predetermined who go to heaven. Um, and that was a kind of contradiction in the work ethic because it was decided in advance who would go to heaven. However, you still had to work hard to get there as a kind of demonstration that you were part of the chosen few. Anyway, so what Kathy Weeks says is that with the shift to kind of Fordist capitalism, and we can talk about this in a moment, but these are epochal periodizations which sometimes can hide as much as they reveal, but nevertheless, with the shift to kind of Fordist capitalism, 
Um, so we're talking about the kind of industrial manufacturing driven economies of the kind of post-war era um, in countries in countries like the UK and 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 in Western Europe and and in Australia. The the promise changes. The promise of the work ethic becomes work hard, apply yourself to work, and you will be able to consume and you will experience some degree of social mobility. So it shifts from a transcendent reward to a material reward. And this is where we get the significance of consumption brought into the meaning of work. So in the Protestant work ethic, it's just work. Work hard and don't consume too much because that's a reflection of kind of a moral failing. But in Fordism, we get work hard, you'll get a wage, you and your family can live comfortably, you'll experience some, perhaps some degree of social mobility, and you can have a nice holiday, you know, in the summer or whatever. Um, so the reward of the work ethic in Fordism is, um, is, is material. Now, Kathy Weeks suggests that the post-Fordist work ethic has shifted and in fact now offers a more substantial uh, reward than it ever has, which is that now the post-Fordist work ethic offers the promise of self-realization. So it's no longer, she suggests, simply about having things and consuming, but rather she suggests that in post-Fordist economies like ours, workers are encouraged to see work as a realm for the realization of the self, to see work as a, as a realm of autonomous and creative self-expression. And in that sense, workers are encouraged to see work not as a kind of you know, a realm of life separate from everything else, but rather are encouraged to invest every aspect of themselves into work, to see work as the real this is where it's at for satisfaction in life, for happiness and for self-realization. And Weeks suggests that the reason behind this shift is that we've seen a transformation in the nature of labor and in the nature of production. And in the, in the nature and in the kind of worker that's, that's demanded of contemporary work. So in Fordist capitalism, there's a distinction between work and, the, and leisure and home and the worker is seen as someone who has a set of capacities that they sell to their the, the kind their employer for a period of time and it's a set of skills that they have that are unique to the tasks they perform at work and this this week suggests relates to the demands of industrial labor whereas weeks suggests contemporary labor tends to demand a set of kind of relational and communicative capacities from workers which aren't actually so easy to pin down as a set of task-specific skills. So she suggests actually what's increasingly seen as valuable in workers is not merely the skills they possess, but their identities, them, their, their selves. And so workers... In, in, you know, and if, if we, we can think about, you know, jobs that require a, a high degree of communicative sophistication, engaging with others, those kinds of things. Weeks suggest contemporary workers are now encouraged to see their identity as, their, as the resource that they bring to work, which is everything about them. Mm. Now, we need to bear in mind that this is not necessarily an empirical claim about the nature of particular jobs. Rather, we can think of this as a kind of, say, an ideology or a, a, a way that we, people are encouraged and incited to relate to themselves in order 
to become workers. This also, what this also does is it situates the notion of productivity in different aspects of the self. So, as I said, you know, the, the Fordist worker is productive on the basis of their skills. The post-Fordist worker is productive on the basis of themselves in general. And so productivity for the ideal post-Fordist worker, the person who kind of lives up to the post-Fordist work ethic, self-realization is productivity. Work is the realization of the self. In that sense, the post-Fordist work ethic promises the most, right, self-realization, but it also demands the most. That is everything. Everything about you needs to be mobilized into becoming productive and cultivated into becoming a worker. So how does then um, the post-Fordist kind of work ethic help us understand the youth, basically, the, the process of sort of becoming a worker? What's the specific kind of dynamics around, uh, around, around youth when it comes to the post-Fordist work ethic? Right. So young people from a very early age are bombarded with questions about what they're going to do when they grow up, hmm. right? And that is effectively, what are you going to do for work? What kind of work are you going to do? And a huge amount of effort is put into um, figuring out how to make young people into workers. And I, I, many young people in many schools do things like careers counseling. They take little tests designed to kind of, you know, what do you, what are you good at X, Y, and Z? What do you enjoy X, Y, and Z? And then at the end, it spits out what kind of job you, you might be suited for. Um, careers counseling is all about, you know, guiding young people into, into work. But all of these things, what they do is they say to young people, what is it about you that you can take out into the labor market? So there is a kind of ethic of self-realization at play in the way that young people are encouraged to become workers. Young people, there's actually a requirement that not just that they become, that, 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 they, that they get jobs, but that they cultivate a working self, hmm. that, they, that they think reflexively over the course of their biography about what they would do as a job, and that they think reflexively about what it might mean for them to become productive. So this is taking place in a context in which young people more broadly are in increasingly precarious social conditions, um, which also demand a certain degree of self-management um, from youth in kind of thinking about uh, what they're going to do with their futures. The advice from their parents is often not that useful because the labour market has changed so dramatically um, since their parents were, were at work. Um, so there's an enormous amount of, I suppose, soul searching that's demanded of young people, but so much of it is about realizing the self through work. And, and, and the post-Fordist work ethic struck me as a useful framework for understanding this, not when I was conceiving the project. Initially, the project was conceived as a kind of Bourdieuian analysis of, of, of risky labor markets. Actually, the post-Fordist work ethic became useful to me when I did, when I spoke to my participants, and and so many of them, it was all about, um, you know, work is the single most important thing for my happiness in the future, and it's really important to me, not just that I get a job, 
but that I get a job that facilitates some kind of self-realization. And it was like, if I don't, that is a disaster on an epic scale. That's like I am necessarily condemned to unhappiness for my entire life. I will find no joy in existence, you know, says your kind of <laughs> many of my kind of idealistic 18 year olds. <laughs> if I do not find a job that I can fall in love with, mm. you know, uh, it's seen as the condition for everything else. Mm. Um, now, we know both you know, because we are adults and we've realized we've, 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 we've been in work for a little while. And we also know from the literature that work is actually unlikely to live up to such high expectations. Mm. But young people are constantly encouraged to, to, be, to think as though it will. And, and to think about the process of becoming a worker as a quest for a realm in which they can sort of realize something important about themselves. And so you know, arrive at some kind of happiness or satisfaction in life. Mm. You mentioned your uh, participants um, there. I know that you, in, in the book, you kind of put the methodology bit kind of towards the end, at the end of the book. But I wonder if you might be able to just say a bit about um, the kind of, because there's so much rich empirical data with this, with this project, how you kind of, um, yeah, well, uh, who, did you, who did you kind of speak to and, and, and what sort of questions were you asking and things like that? As you say, your discussions with them revealed that, that the, the importance of work and this idea that work was the most important thing that people were, had and that if they didn't find a job they loved, they'd be upset forever and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, could you tell me a little bit about kind of the methodology? Mm. So the project interviewed uh, young people from the age of 17 up to the age of, uh, oh, God, do I say it in the book? Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it would have it would have been, hang on. Up to, uh, it would have been, look, let's say late 20s. I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact number. Mm. Um, they were recruited from wherever you can get your hands on a young person who wants to talk to you about work. <laughs> so they were recruited um, from the final year of, uh, of a couple of high schools, then from um, TAFEs. So a TAFE would be, I'm trying to think of what your UK equivalent would be. It's like a vocational training uh, institute. It gives you a certificate, but it's not a degree qualification. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's kind of technical education. You could think of it in those way. Um, uh, through uh, universities and also through job service providers. So welfare organisations that are contracted by the state to... Um, deal with unemployed young people, and then through social media. Because you get a very particular sample when you go through universities and TAFEs. And and and, and so then I, I, I use social media. If there's any researchers out there who are ever struggling to find a sample, I would say Facebook is unbelievable. You will recruit people from the internet. You guaranteed. So, and I, I was struggling, for example, to recruit young people who were unemployed. So I just put up an ad that said, hey, are you looking for work? I'd love to hear about what it's like. So they were from a whole host of different class backgrounds. Um, and in the book, I, I use their narratives to kind of think about class. Um, and they were in a whole, host of a whole host of different ages and doing a whole host of different things, working full time, working part time, studying, only studying, um, you know, at school, things like that. Um, and one of the one of the things I think that um, 
a, a sample like this gives me, though, is uh, I was really struck by how consistent what I was starting to hear was. Now, as researchers, you've got to be careful with that because you've got conceptual frameworks that shape what you're going to see. Mm. Um, but but the the different ways of talking about the self that I talk about the book, that talk about in the book, I, I was really kind of struck by the fact that you could hear things that you, you, you know, that were quite sort of similar from someone who was 18 and from someone who was kind of in their early 20s and working in their first first professional job. And it made me kind of think about the way that there was something going on here in terms of the, the way that young people cultivated a kind of working sense of self over the course of their biography, mm. um, that it was going to be, you know, kind of useful to think about. Mm. Yeah. So as you say, so from this from this data, you kind of identify what you call kind of these three kind of ideal types. Um, and I wonder right. if we can sort of maybe move on to move on to the, the kind of some of those empirics there. And, and as we were speaking before, we click record on this uh, podcast. One of the things that most memorable kind of um, sort of subjects or whatever that, that, that I, I remember from reading the book is this these middle class subjects, which is the kind of first of your um, empirical chapters. Um, so how does how does this kind of give us a flavour of sort of how does this group articulate with this kind of post-Fordist work ethic? Right. So in the book, I talk about three kind of manifestations of the work ethic. And what I'm trying to do in the book is show that the work ethic is not a homogenous thing. It interacts with long-standing, historically embedded dispositions that are connected with class. However, um, as a kind of analytical tool, I separate this into kind of three ideal typical themes, again, a kind of Weberian um, analysis. And the, the, the first uh, set of young people that I introduce in the book are called middle class subjects of passion. And they are memorable. Partially, I think there's something actually going on um, with the uh, homology between the identities of people who read the book and these young people, actually. Um, but they are also memorable because they are very articulate and because they really strike you because they have, they have really, really bought the hype of the work ethic. They've bought the hype. And I'll talk a little bit about why that is. Mm. But the key way that these young people talked about work was through the notion of passion. Passion was an ethic through which they were able to think about themselves as workers, to cultivate themselves as workers, and to think about what they offered to employers. So subjects of passion regard work and, in fact, regard life, or at least described it to me. Okay, there's something going on in, yeah. But regard work as a realm in which they express and realize their passion, their passionate investments. So... They are productive and they succeed at work because they are passionate, right? And they are passionate because they just are. Mm. So passion, in this sense, the way they describe it to me is a kind of energy that they just have, which they actually realize throughout their entire life. So they said to me, work is not a separate part of the rest of my life. It's part of an overall passionate existence that I strive to lead. And I realize my passions in a whole host of different areas in life, but particularly at work. Work was the realm for realizing the passion itself. Now, the thing with passion is that it's kind of a complicated thing because 
Passion is also something that you can find in things and you can lose passion. You can lose your passion as well. And so one of the one of the greatest examples of this is a young guy that I interviewed twice and I interviewed him first. He was um, he was a junior accountant and he'd recently made a sideways move in his organization. Now, like many of these uh, young people, he, he had gotten the, his job. His uh, father was in the business community in his like local city. And, you know, that did not hurt. Right. So anyway, he is he, he tells me a story and he says he's working in a role. And he said, at that time, I thought my passion was X. I can't remember exactly what it was. Something to do with accounting. I thought my passion was X, but I kept applying for promotions and I wasn't getting anywhere. And so it made me reevaluate what is my passion. And then I thought, actually, maybe my passion is this. And I applied for this sideways move in my organization and I got, I got it. So I'm right. <laughs> I'm right that my passion was actually this all along. Right. And so then he succeeds in this role. Later on, he gets a promotion and, and he moves to a larger city and, and I interview him there again. So passion is he sees this as a kind of quasi autonomous force which drives him in his life, but which he has to kind of keep a hold of. Right. Mm. The thing about passion as well. And the thing about this guy is that also when you relate to work through an ethic of passion, you see everything in terms of your own passion. So he said, I'm passionate in my local cricket team. I facilitate relationships. I facilitate sporting events. We go on trips together. I'm passionate in, um, he was part of an organization for uh, young professionals. Um, and this was kind of a networking organization for young professionals. And he said, I'm passionate in this realm. I offer mentorship, etc. And I'm passionate at work. So on the one hand, work is just one way that you can realize your passions. However, the other side of that is that work also takes over everything else. Mm -hmm. Because he said, um, the things that I do outside of work, I think also offer value to my employers. They see that I'm good with relationships. They see that, you know, they just see that I'm a passionate person. So everything becomes subsumed by the logic of passion. If you succeed, it's because you're in touch with your passion. If you fail, it's because you were wrong about what your passion was. And what you need to do is re-examine where you're going in your life and um, harness your passion and realize it. So being a subject of passion defines self-realization in a really particular way and it defines productivity in a really particular way and the way that i organize the categories in the book are on the basis of how young people define productivity and how they define their relationship with work and how they define self-realization so subjects of passion see um, success at work instead in, in terms of passionate self-actualization they see value and productivity in terms of passion so what they have to create value is passion and when they succeed at work they are self-realized um, and this is even to the point where they will do things that aren't seemingly about work at all but they'll describe them as relevant to becoming a worker so there was one young woman who said to me you know i do a lot of yoga and yoga is about modulating your emotional state and your 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 intellect your cognitive state and i do particular kinds of yoga um and before a meeting she said if you're ever if you're ever um tired before you have to go and give a talk go and stand on your head for 15 minutes and it will give you a lot of energy now i haven't tried this but she assured <laughs> me that it would work so 
for them, it's almost like you, you're never not somehow preparing yourself for work, you know? Um, so on the one hand, subjects of passion get the biggest rewards, which is self-realization. On the other hand, they make the biggest, they give, they give the most, which is everything, right? Yeah. But the thing is that the reason that subjects of passion, I think, have, have bought the hype is because it works for them. It actually, because it worked, right? Um, they went through work and they, they got the jobs that were high status professional jobs. Or uh, another thing, I don't know if I'm talking too much here, but anyway, another thing that's really key is the, is the meaning of money. So subjects of passion, like all polite middle-class individuals consider talking about money to be very gauche, Mm. right? Talking about money is impolite, and they emphasize they don't even want to talk about how money's not important to them, <laughs> really. But of course, they, they're fairly confident that they'll be okay financially in their life, right? So, but what they emphasize is that work is not about money. So they don't want to muddy the meaning of work with material rewards. Work is not about money, it's just about passionate self-realization. But that's very different to the other participants in the book. Yeah, and I think that leads nicely onto your kind of next sort of category, really, where there's this um, much more of a focus on on money and kind of material security. And so, in the next uh, chapter, you talk about the um, the subjects of of achievement um, and being defined as people interested in in kind of yeah social mobility, material security, and things like this. Um, and so, how, how do these how do these kind of subjects compare to these uh, quite mm. very like you say these uh, the subjects of passion really bought into the hype of the kind of post-Ford is work ethic and about passion and passion drives everything irrespective of money. And like you say, but it's come from a position of, 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 of privilege, as you say, the middle-class subjects here. So what about the subjects achievement there and how does class, I guess, play a role in this? Right. So um, subjects of passion all come from exactly the same social background. Actually, all of them have parents who are um, in professional work and who are university educated, at least one parent with a degree, often two, um, they went to, you know, uh, they went to, they went to well-resourced schools, you know, I mean, they're doing all right. Yeah. So the second, the second set of, of narratives that I look at the book are from young people who I call subjects of achievement. These young people, um, tended not to come from, well, none of them, in fact, came from families like that. They came from a fairly, uh, diverse group of, uh, you know, the, their parents tended to work in kind of trades and clerical occupations. They might have technical qualifications, not that much university education in the family. But they themselves, these young people, were still very aspirational. So subjects of achievement relate to work as a realm of self-realization as well, right? But what self-realization uh, means for them is really different. So subjects of achievement are very clear that for them, they want to realize, they want to self-realize at work, but they will know when that has happened when they are materially successful. So whereas subjects of passion um, don't, they, they just, they're just going to know when they're successful if they're, you know, in tune with their vibe, right? Whereas subjects of achievement, their, their goal is some degree of social mobility. Um, and many of them spoke about how what was at stake in becoming a worker wasn't just self-realization, although it was that. It was also avoiding um, precarity and a feeling of failure 
um, that sometimes they compared themselves to people around them who had jobs that they felt were low status, um, poorly paid, precarious, who they felt were struggling in their lives. Um, they, some of the young women compared themselves to people that they had gone to school with who had had children early, and they said, you know, I really I don't want that for my life. So there was a sense that lurking in the background of this process of becoming a worker was the possible calamity of failure and of falling into a kind of precarious and materially impoverished position. So while the subjects of passion were fairly confident that they would realize themselves, the subjects of achievement were anxious. They felt a lot of risk. They felt that there was a lot at stake and that they could fail. But um, the, the way that they went about um, figuring out what it meant for them to become a worker and cultivating a kind of working self was very different to the subjects of passion. The subjects of passion all went to university, but none of them spoke about university as being significant in, because they're just, that's just how they are. They're just passionate people, right? Um, Subjects of achievement, they do this. They think, what is it about me? What is an attribute of myself that I can cultivate into a skill and that will help me get a, a good job? So subjects of passion are saying everything about me is value. Subjects of achievement have to find something about themselves and it requires a very particular attitude towards education, which was really significant in their narratives um, and education was about, okay, you know, when, since I was 10 years old, uh, I've always thought that I was good at something. So I had one young woman who said, you know, in my family, even as a kid, I was always the one who was organizing people to make sure that we were on track to go on a family outing or something. Or if we had a, some kind of family excursion, I was always the one who was making sure that we knew what the next stop on our journey was or something like that. And then I thought to myself, you know, I might, I might like to go into event management. So she, she found that there was a qualification in event management and she thought, that's it. that really sounds like me. I'm very organized. I'm good at organizing people. I'm good at managing kind of practical contingencies. Event management is for me. So she goes. So she still wants to realize an attribute of herself that she thinks is valuable and she wants to do that at work. But for her, it's a piece of herself separate to everything else. But she found it. She cultivated it into a skill. And then she went off and she um, and she uh, sold it on the labor market in the way that you know workers do. So I interviewed this young woman twice, once when she was right at the end of her qualification and then a year later. And she had done well. Um, it had worked for her as well. She got a junior position in a bank and she was very excited by this. She she It wasn't quite an event management role, but it was a good job in a large organization. And I said to her, you know, so what what's good about this? And she said, well, I can get promoted heaps, right? Hmm. So there's a lot that I can do with my skills and I think I'll be good about this and I think it'll be a good place to work. But she looked at it, there was a hierarchy there and she could think, okay, in X years, I'd like to be at this level, making this amount of money. And many of the subjects of achievement had plans like that. I would like to achieve this material outcome in this amount of time, right? And that's how I'll know that I've really done, you know, the right thing for myself, right? So they were very clear that they wanted money. There was there was no embarrassment talking about that. Um, and money and material security would be a signifier that they had properly self-realized. So the realization of the self for a subject of achievement who is still enormously invested in work as a kind of, as, as a space for realizing the value of the self, but self-realization happens with material success. Mm. And so value is about a skill 
that a, a personal attribute cultivated into a skill. So while both of these groups of people relate to work as a realm of self-realization, subjects of achievement do it in a way that kind of blends what Kathy Weeks suggests is the Fordist and the post-Fordist work ethic. Subjects of achievement are interested in self-realization, but they're also interested in, in, in skills. They are interested in enjoyment at work, but they're also interested in having money and consuming. So what I kind of try to say in the book is that if we look at the work ethic, we don't find these neat historical epochs. Actually, what we find are continuities between the Fordist and the post-Fordist work ethic. And I think one, one way that we could try to start to think about where that, where that comes from as sociologists is through um, uh, analyses of class that looks at class in terms of historically relatively enduring dispositions that, 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 that uh, are maintained intergenerationally. And that's kind of what I try to do in the book is to think about the way that these dispositions might interact with the incitement to self-realization through work to produce the work ethic as a relatively heterogeneous set of meanings. Yeah. So you're saying with the, the, the subjects of achievement, they're, they're very fearful of kind of precarity and, and fearful of failure, basically, of, of, of failure of in work and connected to these questions around material security. And I guess that then kind of brings us on to, to the sort of last kind of ideal, uh, typical kind of uh, type uh, of worker, these workers who have experienced um, unemployment, alienation, marginalization, whatever it might whatever it might be. These sometimes when we think about some of the kind of well, what you talk about in the first chapter about the focus often being on these lousy and bad jobs. And it's these mm. workers who are often having to experience these these lousy and um, bad jobs. So. In relation to the post-Fordist work ethic, which is, like you say, all about the cultivation of, of the self and, and, and value being expressed in kind of realised in, in particular ways, how does this final um, group, the ones you say the, the struggling against the working self, how do they... Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah I, I call that, that third empirical chapter the struggle for the working self. And, and this is young people for whom, you know, the, it didn't work. It didn't work out in the way that they were told it should. Um, they came from a range of different backgrounds. Many of them had backgrounds that were very similar to the subjects of achievement, and many had backgrounds that were quite a lot more difficult, um, backgrounds in which they had perhaps become estranged from their parents at a relatively young age, or backgrounds where their parents were in work that was very poorly remunerated and extremely precarious. Um, there had been a sense of material day-to-day -day struggle, you know, for quite a lot of their, for quite a lot of their life. So, Subjects of, of achievement see work as something where they can realise an aspect of, or, or a skill of themselves. But this third group, and I don't call them subjects of anything, because what I try to say in the book is that actually this is a, a, a set of experiences in which the work ethic starts to break down um, and, and in some ways is revealed as a kind of ideological fiction, but also the inability to, 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 to cultivate the self as a subject of value within the work ethic is also really quite a traumatic experience for many young people. So um, subjects, uh, the, the, the third group of young people aren't focused on realising the self. The third group of young people are focused on trying to find work by getting it right. So they relate to work not as a realm of self-realisation, but as a, as a fairly foreign realm governed by rules that they find opaque 
that is, is confusing, that they're not sure will welcome who they are. And so they're focused on doing things that they hope will follow the rules of appropriateness and hence allow them to find a job. So one example uh, of this was a young woman that I interviewed um, and she had been unemployed uh, for a, a couple of years after finishing school, but had done what all diligent young people do and gone off to TAFE and done a series of qualifications. She had done a huge number of things, um, all sorts of certifications, more than I can remember. Some of them were in bookkeeping, some of them were in childcare, some of them were in community services, which is kind of welfare work. Um, she wasn't really clear. I asked her why she did these things. There wasn't really a rationale as to as to anything about her that um, would be suited to these jobs. She was just kind of doing them. They did tend to be the kind of traditional forms of work that uh, young working class women would have been encouraged to aspire to. But it was it was enormously diverse. So one of the other things, though, as well, that when I spoke to her, she talked about the way that for her. One of the biggest things about, um, for, uh, you know, becoming a worker and finding a job was that she was working on her bodily comportment and her way of interacting with others. So she was doing things like public speaking classes. She was involved in a, in a community organization that did a kind of leadership training program that taught her how much eye contact you should um, make with a person when you speak what's the best way to shake a person's hand. She And this was cultivating employability for her. Another young woman I spoke to said, you know, I think to get jobs, it's very important that, you you know, you speak nicely, you make sure you thank people at particular times if you're going for a job interview. They talked a lot about job interviews because they'd been to a lot of them and were constantly trying to figure out why it never worked out. And it was all about basically putting on the right performance for them. So whereas the other young people, it was kind of like be authentically yourself and that's what it means to become a worker. For these young people, it was, well, myself isn't welcome here. I need to learn the rules and do it correctly. And 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 a lot of what they talked about was in a sense about how they were going to kind of perform themselves properly, but in a realm that they felt was really unfamiliar and they were never quite sure if they were getting it right. Then as time, as time went on, I interviewed, so the young woman that I, I uh, one of the young women I, I mentioned earlier, I interviewed her with her partner. And when I interviewed them together, he was working as a baker in a supermarket and she had just found a job as a contract cleaner in the same supermarket chain. She was very pleased because she was employed and she felt that the, the wage was good. Um, and he was working in, uh, in the bakery of the same chain. And, you know, he was tired. Bakers get up really early. But they felt that they were doing all right. They had both struggled to get into work. They just wanted work. They had it. And it was all good. Then I interviewed them again a year later. And the story was really different. So for him, he'd been getting really honestly slammed by his employer. His shifts are changing around all the time. One day he's up at 2 o'clock in the morning. The next day he's up at, you know, the, the, the way that precarious workers in, in professions like bakers are often working all these crazy shifts. And he basically said that, I remember there was one, there was one moment where he said to you, uh, X supermarket chain, they demand your soul. <laughs> That's what he said. And I was like, really? I was like, really? They demand your soul? He's like, yeah, they want your soul. They want your total commitment. But basically he said, it's complete bullshit. And he was totally alienated. 
So he's not buying the hype. I mean, he's getting up at two o'clock in the morning to go and bake bread. He's not, there's nothing, he's not in, under any illusions that he's realizing himself here. So she, on the other hand, had had to go through this unspeakably uh, difficult experience where um, Centrelink, which is our kind of welfare, you know, um, benefits organization, had said to her that she wasn't working enough because she was still getting some benefits from Centrelink. She wasn't working enough. Now, she was working as much as she could, but it's shift work. She has no control over the hours that she works. So they said, we, we need you to get another day of employment. And so she looked for a job for a while, and eventually her, her job service provider said, we found you one day a week working in a pharmacy. So she said, great, that's fine. So she goes to her employer at the cleaning company, and she says, I can no longer work on Fridays. Now, this is someone whose who's schedule changes, work schedule is changing every week. She has no control over her hours. Her employer sucks her and says, well, if you can't work Fridays, that's it. I've got other people who are always available. So now you're not working at all. So she's lost her job now. Then she goes to this pharmacy and the pharmacist says, oh, they told me you were 16. I've got to pay you X amount of money because she's in her early 20s. Sorry. So now she's unemployed. <laughs> um, she goes through a year in which she can't find work. She suffers enormous mental health problems, massive problems with her self-esteem, goes to interview after interview, and she says to me, eventually you have to start thinking to yourself, what's wrong with me? Eventually, you think it must be something about me. There's no other explanation for why I can't find work. Um, and then she, she has problems with anxiety that make it increasingly difficult for her to go to interviews, to even leave the house and 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 it's, you know, so they're in a they're in a very difficult situation during the second interview, and it's very different. And what I want to kind of point out here is that there, for the work ethic, for it to feel like it works, there has to be a set of structural conditions in place that facilitate young people kind of, you know, feeling like this isn't all just a big lie. But the problem is that all they have to um, fall back on if they want to kind of try to um, change their situation in work, because, of course, being unemployed is not a good experience, is the work ethic. All they have to fall back on is the idea of the cultivation of the self. And, and so, you know, the, the, the young person I spoke to who's doing public speaking classes, classes in bodily comportment, things like that, is a great example of the fact that for her, employability was just about looking and trying to figure out what was wrong with herself and then trying to perform the self correctly in a way that presented the impression of a socially appropriate worker. So while the others are trying to self-realize, this third group are just trying to be socially appropriate in the hope that they can present the right image of a properly disciplined worker and find work. Well, bringing it now maybe to, to, to sort of the, the final question, which is, I guess, the kind of uh, bringing out from the, uh, the kind of the, the, the interesting empirical d um, data that you've got and the, the sort of three ideal types and to think about the kind of wider kind of ramifications and implications of this and think about, well, how does this conceptualization of the kind of self and young people's practices and subjectivities and definitions of value tell us about the post-Ford, um, post-Fordist work ethic? I know you've mentioned the idea of it not being a heterogeneous kind of uh, category and not being necessarily a particular epoch or whatever, but mm. what are the kind of wider sort of implications are of it? Well, yeah, I mean, sociologists um, talk a lot about the past, but I'm sort of convinced that we're actually not very good historians. Um, and there is a tradition of sociological thinking which is really about identifying historical epochs. Um, and I think that 
it can be useful to do that because the 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 reason that sociologists do this is usually to emphasize novel characteristics of the present and that's useful mm. because there are novel characteristics of the present um however i don't think it's i don't think it's helpful to see necessarily the fordist and post fordist work ethic in particular as um strictly separate things because well for a start there are young people right now who have some very fordist orientations to work mm. um and i think with subjects of achievement and this is a, this is a suggestion which i i kind of welcome a response from the field on this subjects of achievement have what i think are very traditional fordist attitudes towards work coupled with the broader incitement to self-realization through labor that's characteristic of the post-fordist work ethic and the sociolo sociologist Pierre Bourdieu has talked about class as a set of relatively enduring dispositions which aren't necessarily um uh, explicit attitudes focused towards particular things but with but which operate as sort of guiding principles for acting in the world and for seeing meaning in the world and these are these are reproduced intergenerationally so one of the suggestions that i make in the book is that possibly what we're seeing here is a kind of rearticulation or a, a particular articulation of the post-fordist work ethic drawing on relatively working class dispositions towards work so i would welcome you know feedback from the field about about what they think about this more broadly though on the other hand i do think it's useful to think about the post fordist work ethic as something that impacts on everyone because we can see the post fordist work ethic in all sorts of areas that you know aren't my book so for example the entire genre of self help books are about self realization and the heaps of them are about work that heaps of them are targeted towards a professional kind of middle class readership and the idea here is basically that look within yourself and succeed in your career so the post fordist work ethic is being articulated all over the place all the time any time we 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 are asked to say about work that it has a meaning for us in terms of you know our identities somehow any time we forced we're encouraged to identify with work that is the work ethic whatever it is that we want to call it and i do think that i mean i'm i'm in in the realms of speculation now this is not empirically based but i think that what's happening is that um the ideology of 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 professions that are culturally exalted and celebrated profession perfect middle class professions which are the ones that most closely uh, adhere to the post fordist work ethic is spreading through a whole lot of different ways and is articulating with other things like you know there's a lot about passion in the creative industries for example the creative industries are seen as high status uh, and also contemporary and kind of culturally cutting edge forms of work that a lot of people are encouraged to aspire to i think what we're seeing here is just a proliferation of this notion of work as a realm of autonomous self realization that's being sold to everybody so you know i i do accept that the work ethic is if, if as much as anything else an ideological fiction and we also know that later in life young people no longer buy the hype we know that from other studies so when people have um when people have children when they're a bit further in their career um work is no longer such a playground right um there's other priorities in life it's not so easy so but i do think there is a period of time in which the post fordist work ethic is really pushed on young people and in which they see an enormous promise 
you know, because if it works, it's fantastic. Uh, well, thanks very much, uh, David. It's been great, uh, great chatting to you. Thank you.